0: You know, Devaroli's book. Do you make any money on that? I said, they're still looking for publishers. They haven't published it yet. And he goes, what are you talking about, bro? And he pulls out Ocean's Drive magazine. Ephraim Devaroli is holding a copy of his manuscript, or sorry, a copy of his book, his hardcover book. It says under the caption, Ephraim Devaroli at the 2016 Miami Book Fair in Miami. He's holding up my book. Once a gun runner. And look, my name's right there. Ephraim Dever memoir, Ephraim Deverolli with Matthew Cox, and you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say based. It doesn't say based on his truth on this story. It says once a gun runner, the real story. Like all that happened, and while you were in prison, and got out, and then you did. Yes, it's insanity. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am continuing on my prison story. Uh, This is part 12, maybe, because there's some questionable stuff going on with how we're labeling it and the parts. We don't know. It's definitely part 12 of the prison story, part 20-something of my overall story, which who knows how long that will go. I don't know but here is where we're at we were at the we're at the war dogs section or what I like to call um you know dude where's my hand grenade so let me go ahead and give you some background information I think on my last video I talked about I was talking about RDAP the um residential drug uh, residential drug abuse program or something like that probably um and how i um was kind of trying to delay being moved to a camp and i wanted to stay in tampa i was writing stories i was i was there were multiple things my mother um there were multiple factors that i why i wanted to stay in the prison i was at and i all there's a bunch of different things that i did to stay there so but This is – but in order to tell this part of the story, I have to jump way back to 2011? Is it 2011? I don't know. Whatever. I think it was 2000 – was it 2011? Man, this is insane. Um – yeah, yeah. I want to say it was like 2000, probably 2011, 2012 ish. I don't know the exact dates. Yeah, I want to say it was late 2011. So in late 2011, uh, I, I I had just finished my memoir. So I had just finished my own personal memoir. I had been writing my. I started my memoir in. Let's say 2009, because I had gotten to prison in 2000, you know, I was arrested late 2006. 2007, I was kept in a U.S. Marshals holdover while I was was, um, waiting to be sentenced. Then I got sentenced in 2007, late 2007, I got to prison. By 2009 or 10, I was in the low security prison, and I started writing my story. So... I wrote my. I was in the middle of writing my story, and multiple things had happened or were happening. I'll give you. I'll give you a. Give you a it's, it's like super complicated. So if I'm if I'm st- stammering or seems a little sketchy, you know, cut me some slack, bro. There was a bunch of factors going on here, and I'm also wondering how much I, how far back I go, for context. So. I started writing my memoir because once I... If you've been watching this, you understand that I was interviewed by a bunch of programs. Uh, I, I had been on the run. I got caught. I was interviewed by American Greed, Dateline, those types of programs. They came out. I, w- I had, was trying to get my sentence reduced. I was doing a bunch of stuff. But one of the things that continually happened was people kept saying, Hey, you need to write a memoir. So what I did was I ordered... A bunch of books a bunch whatever two or three books and, and to be honest like out of whatever two or three books that I ordered the best book I read was a book by this woman who's written like three or four memoirs about herself and it, it was a book called about how to write memoirs and it was just this little tiny book it was probably maybe uh, maybe 50 or 100 pages and I read it and it probably had the, the most profound impact on me as far as writing so what I did was I started writing Started writing my my, my memoir and i just finished or was finished. i just finished my book which is is Sh- shark in the housing pool right here shark in the housing shark in the housing pool that's a good one too that's a good that's right shark in, shark in the housing pool so i just finished this book it's a very good read and i called it shark in the housing pool by the way because one of the articles about me and my co-defendant was in Bloomberg Businessweek, and they called it Sharks in the Housing Pool. So I went with Shark in the Housing Pool. And I did this, by the way, before I'd ever heard of the Wolf of Wall Street. Because then, it's funny because when I named it that and people were reading it, they were like, oh, Shark in the Housing Pool, like with the Wolf of Wall Street. And I was like, "Like what's what's that? And then eventually the book got on the compound, and I read, I saw the book. And I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah that's that's cool." But actually, I just stole it off from uh, I stole it from uh, Bloomberg Businessweek. Anyway, I digress. Here's so here's what happened. There was a guy named Ephraim. Scrap, scrap that. I'll get to that in a minute. So I had just finished my memoir. I finished my memoir, and I wanted to try and get it published. Well, traditional publishing is done. Like if you want to have your book in books, Barnes and Noble's. Let's say you want to be, you want someone like Doubleday or Simon and Schuster to rep to represent you and to be your publisher, right? Like you want a big name publisher, then you can't really go directly to unless you're somebody major, like a, a huge politician or something. You can't really go to Doubleday or or Simon and Schuster or Penguin or whoever. You can't really go to them directly. You typically have to go to a literary agent. So what I did was I started writing letters to literary agents. You're not going to believe this, but there's a lot of literary agents out there, and none of them really want to deal with some guy who's in prison. So what happened was I'm writing letters. I'm getting denials. I end up calling my sister, and my sister tells me – I I called my sister, and I said, hey, listen – I would. I need to find a literary agent, and I don't. I don't know if you know anybody, or maybe if you could look me up some addresses or whatever. I ended up getting a book, and I was mailing out from the book. It's called a Literary Agent's Guide. But I asked her, and she goes, "You know, it's funny that you say this to me." And I said, "Okay, why is that?" She was because a few years ago, Jack, which is my sister's husband, was representing a guy by the name of Ross Reback. Ross Reback is an entertainment agent he's also kind of like a literary agent um, producer he's kind of like a jack of all all fields uh, he represented some guys named Ron and Ron in the morning um, they uh, they were huge they were you know they're like Howard Stern or um, Bubba the love Sponge, those guys like he'd represented them like Ross was he represent he represented a bunch of people well my brother-in-law had represented him in a lawsuit. And they were flying to Los Angeles to settle the lawsuit. And as they're flying to Los Angeles, Ross, or oh, well, my brother-in-law says to Ross, he says, so what are you going to do after this? He says, um, "He says, you know, I don't know. He said, I'm not sure. He said, I, you know what I, I really, what I want to do. Now, of course, Ross is a multimillionaire. Ross says, you know what I'd really like to do is I would like to... I'd like to produce a movie. Like, I'd like to be involved in actually getting a, a movie made. And Ross uh, basically had purchased the, a book that was called um, Mob Lawyer. It was a book that had been written by a lawyer who would represented a bunch of mobsters. And he was in the process of trying to get that movie made. Well, he says, uh, I, I, I'd like to be a part of that. And he said... You know, he's But I, it just doesn't seem like the movie, that, the book that he was representing was going to be able to it, turn into anything, right? So it had a bunch of big-name actors um, that were interested. But, you know, you have to write a screenplay. It's called pay-to-play. You have to pay somebody. Like, you know, you give some screenplay writer. Listen, it's a very clicky business. The point is he had some issues with it, and he said to my brother-in-law, he goes, you know what? Be, he said, I'd really like to make some kind of a crime movie or something like, you know, Catch Me If You Can or something like that. He goes, you know— he goes, there's a guy right now from Tampa that is on the run, and the authorities are looking for him. And I've read a bunch of articles on this guy, and he is super interesting. And he had just got caught in like a bank, and he talked his way out of it, and they let him go. This guy is – I think he's like at the top of the Secret Service most wanted list or something. And my brother-in-law looks at him and says, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He goes, his name's Matt Cox. He goes, he's my brother-in-law. And he goes, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. He said, uh, he's my brother-in-law. He goes, don't worry. He said, they'll catch him eventually. He'll go to prison. He goes, and I'll introduce you. So, you know, my brother-in-law had no confidence in me. Um, it just, just coincidence that he was right. So anyway, uh, so my sister tells me this this whole, you know, tells me that Ross – has always wanted to meet me and possibly represent me. I'm like, oh, wow, I just finished my memoir. And she goes, send it to me. So I make copies of it, and I send it to her. She sends it to Ross. Ross reads it. They Ross and my brother-in-law schedule a time to come see me. Now, Ross, because he came with my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law was a lawyer, he, was a, he ended up getting approved to come see me. Even though... I didn't know him prior to prison. See, typically to go see an, a federal prisoner in Coleman, you have to have a pre-existing a, a pre-existing relationship with them. But I didn't have one with Ross, but they approved him anyway. And I'm pretty sure I even went to my probation officer. I mean, went to my um counselor and begged and pleaded him and he said, "Well, if he's coming in with your with your brother-in-law then, you know, I'll consider him like you know, a, a legal associate or something like that. I forget what he said, but he, he ended up pro- uh, approving him, which was like a miracle. So they come in. I meet with Ross. Ross says I've read the book, and he said you you need to rewrite. He said he said you need to rewrite the book. This actually takes place over two meetings, but he goes, "You need to rewrite the book." He goes because I read the whole book and it, it just it was it's, a, it's an amazing story. He said, "But you didn't put no- enough about you in there." So at that point, I was in the middle of reading these books that I had ordered. What is this? Is going on and on? Is this too much? Is it too much? Too much back? Is it too much? Oh, tell me. Listen, you can always fast forward. So um, I, I was in the middle of you know I I read these books and everything, and I I, I was trying to. Anyway, I, I kind of so I was like, well, what do you, what should I do? So Ross was like, I need to rewrite some parts of it. So I rewrite a few parts of it, um, and it comes back and or Ross reads it again. He comes back, and he says, bro, he it goes, it was amazing. You know, you did an amazing job. You know, you talked about your father because I had left out some stuff about my father, about you know his alcoholism, about being raised by him, having a learning disability. Like, there's a lot of little things I had left out, and I went and put those things back in there, beefed up the book a bit, little bit more, made me more of a gave. Gave the reader more of a background on me. Anyway, the point is, I met Ross. Ross said, I'm going to represent you on the book, on, on your book. I said, great. While that's going on, it just so happened. This is now, this is late. Now, at this point, we're talking about it's late 2000 or probably mid mid to late 2011, a guy by the name of Ephraim Deveroli came on the compound. And I'll tell you who Ephraim Deveroli is. Ephraim Deveroli is the guy or the character played by Jonah Hill in the movie War Dogs. If you've seen War Dogs, you know what the movie's about. And I'll get into that in in a little bit. But the the background for that is there's a guy named David Packhouse and a guy named Ephraim Deveroli. Ephraim Deveroli owned and was running a company called AEY. AEY what he he it was just him. When I say running, he had a corporation. He had a corporation, and his corporation basically had gotten, he'd managed to get himself approved on the government, a government website that allowed you to bid on contracts. And he was bidding on contracts. Well, he brings in this guy, David packhouse to help him. He's a childhood friend. And they're bidding on arms deals. And we're talking about like providing like ten thousand AK forty sevens to the Iraqi security forces. And if you don't know what that is, the Iraqi security forces are like when we went into Iraq, we set up their security forces, right? Like their police and their armed forces, and we set them up and we also funded them. We also gave them all their their, uh, their weapons. Well, there was a ton of weapons that were hanging that were sitting around which were from the old from the Soviet Union. So, a lot of countries had just stockpiles of ak forty seven, seven 7.62 rounds, um, drag sniper rifles, um, you know, just mortar rounds, like all this stuff from the Soviet era. Well, Devaroli was buying that stuff and and then sending it to Afghanistan or, or, or Iraq. House comes in. They end up getting this huge contract. Now, here's the thing. Devaroli had already gotten like a $50 million contract. For to supply weapons, like these are little things that you don't know that they don't talk about in the movie. But he was already doing massive deals, and one of them was like a fifty. He had like a five million dollar contract, like a two million dollar one, and a twelve million, a fifteen, and a fifty million dollar contract that he had basically almost completely fulfilled. He then gets a three hundred million dollar contract with this guy named David Packhouse, who was a childhood friend. So they source all the where they can get the 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 ammunition the bulk of this was just ammunition so this is not ak-47 this is just ammunition for the Afghani security forces because by this point the United States had invaded Afghanistan and needed um, needed to supply them with uh, you know with um, weapons Now this is back in 2000 and you know 2000 what 2002 2003 anyway so he's been doing this. He's, he's doing, so, so these guys get this contract and this is where it goes wrong. It ends up going wrong where they get this contract and keep in mind too, they're, they're going to places to buy this, this ammunition that the government knows is old. They know it's 20 and 30 years old. He ends up going to Albania and they go to Albania and they buy, a, the Albanians have a ton of 7.62 rounds. And so they go in, they, they. They get a contract with the Albanians to buy seven point six two rounds. The initial initially the rounds that were sent to Afghanistan were seven point six two rounds. Because you have to understand, let's say it's I don't know, a hundred million dollars worth of just seven point six two rounds. Well, even if it's that much, that many rounds, they don't ship it all at once. You can't like load that up on one plane, right? Like this is this is 50 or 100, 200 trips. So the, the initial block of, or task order, they call them task orders, the initial task order of 7.62 rounds was Albanian made 7.62 rounds. Well, then the Albanians run out of their stuff. They start giving them Chinese 7.62 rounds, and they ship it. They actually ship, several, ship it several times before they realize that it's Chinese. Because they didn't actually have anybody really on site to to figure that out. Not not initially. Well, when they figure it out, they decide, you know what we're going to do? Let's just repackage it. Now, they don't actually repackage it. it is, they don't, they're not initially, this is just according to Deveroli. Initially, they weren't repackaging it to hide that it was Chinese. Now, you have to understand there was, during Tiananmen Square in 19... Eighty-nine or ninety-one. Anyway, during Tiananmen Square in China, there were in Tiananmen Square there were protests. Chinese fired on their own people. They these were Chinese students that wanted to overturn China. This was after the Soviet Union fell. They were protesting and they were trying to overturn the the CCP and and make it a a, a democracy. Well, the CCP wasn't having it, and they ordered the military to fire on the crowd. And they fired on the crowd and they killed. I don't know. Maybe a thousand of their own people, and as a result of that, the United States and a bunch of countries put embargoed any Chinese ammunition, or I think uh, I don't think it's just ammunition. I think it's a combination of ammunition and uh, weapons in general. So they put a ban. They said, "Look, well, you know, you guys are shooting people. We're not going to buy any more weapons." Like you know, they could have said, "We're going to ban all goods from you because of what you just did." of course, we wouldn't we love our our phones. So, you know, let's just go with let's just go with ammunition. It makes it seem like we're doing something. So they said, hey, no more, no more weapons from China. Well, so Deveroli knew and Pacquiao knew, hey, we're not allowed to ship this stuff. Um but they were already at the point where they were repackaging a lot of the a lot of the munitions they were sending because fuel prices had shot up. And Devereauxly hadn't accounted for that, and also the crates that everything was being shipped in were very heavy. So like twenty to thirty percent of the of the weight, or twenty percent of the weight of some of these things, was just the wood and you know, the lumber that these things were crated in. So what they did was they would pull them out of the crates, pull them out of the um, they call them sardine cans. These big cans that you peel off, so they're hermetically sealed. They would dump all the all the AK 47 rounds or 7.62 rounds, the, the AK rounds, into plastic bags and just pile them up and wrap them up in visqueen and put them on the uh on these planes to be flown into Afghanistan. Well, at the same time that was happening, they also found out, hey my God, these are this is Chinese. So as a result of that, it it definitely appeared that they were repackaging the AK forty seven rounds to hide them. Now, listen. It was really, according to Dev it was two prong. You know, it, it happened to meet both those standards. But we were already repackaging anyway when we found out. So it just worked to to our advantage. Well, they weren't allowed to send the, the that, even though it was all pre embargo. So prior to the embargo, this all this ammunition had been made, which make means it's it's not illegal to buy and sell it. But it was against their contract. Their contract said you cannot ship Chinese ammunition or sell us Chinese or use Chinese ammunition. They were using it anyway. Ultimately, what happens is the and I want to say DCIS or something. I I don't, I don't know exactly the name of the. It's a military uh, company. It's a military part of the military. They they get several complaints saying that that Deveroli and packows are shipping. AK-47s that are being made in China and re-stamped in Hungary. This wasn't true. And that's what caused them to get raided. So their offices get raided because they think they're buying Chinese AK-47s, and they're not. And this was just a a, a complaint that was filed by one of their competitors. Because you have to understand that they were, if you read the book, you'd realize like they were beating out their competitors all the time. And the $300 million contract, a lot like in the movie, uh, they were, I think, 50 or 60, fifty or $60 million below the lowest bid. So think about it. You're $50, $60 million below the, 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 lowest, the, the closest bid. You may be $100 million below some of the bids. I know this doesn't seem exciting, but it's getting there. All right. With that said, Deverell, their offices get raided, and they end up finding out that they end up finding out that um, that they're shipping Chinese ammunition. So, hey, guess what? We th- we raided you because of this reason. But turns out when we were searching your paperwork, some stuff came to light. Uh, they ended up talking to pac owls says, "Hey, look, yeah, we're shipping Chinese ammunition." And they indict Pacquiao's, they indict um, another guy named uh, Ralph, and they indict Devaroli. Pacquiao's and Ralph come in and they cooperate and say, hey, look, this is, yeah, this is what happened. This is what we were doing. Sorry, my bad. They get probation. Devaroli, on the other hand, ends up doing a deal on probation. He's going to get probation too. But while on probation, or sorry, while waiting to be sentenced, he ends up doing a deal with a guy the guy that owns a uh, night armaments which is in central central florida and they make uh, Knight night sniper rifles for the military well i mean guess for, for anybody really i guess anyway he's doing a deal with with uh, them and he leave he leaves the jurisdiction he can't leave the southern jurisdiction of florida cuz he's gone like a he's on a um, I don't know if he was on an ankle monitor at the time, but he ends up leaving the jurisdiction. When he leaves the jurisdiction, he ends up, uh, there's a an ATF agent, and the ATF agent ends up handing him like a 9mm, telling him they're going to go shooting. And uh, because, because he actually grabbed the 9mm and held it, they arrested him immediately for being a felon in possession of a firearm. Just because he held it. And he handed it to him. He brought he brought the gun. Like, listen, Deveroli totally got screwed on this. By the way, I mean, he shows up. He had told the guy, "I can't go shooting with you." Um, th- you'd have to read the book to really see what happened. And 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 there's there's multiple versions of this story. By the way, there's my version, which is you know, Deveroli's memoir, which actually you're not even be able to read it. But and then there's also a book called uh, by Guy Lawson. I should have brought that book down too. I could have shown that one. I have that one upstairs. By Geed Lawson called the uh, Arms and the Dudes. Same thing, like Deveroli is doing this deal. He has to go to a meeting. They beg him to go, to go to the meeting. They know it's outside the jurisdiction. He finally says, okay, fine. It's only like 20 minutes outside the jurisdiction. They say, bring some weapons. We're going to go shooting. He says, no, I can't do that. He shows up without a weapon. The DEA or the ATF agent hands him a gun. Just like. Hands it to him, and Deborah really grabs it and goes, he's like, fuck. And he looks at it, he goes, yeah, it's a nice piece, bro. Hands it back to him. Hands him another gun. He's like, yeah, it's a nice piece. Hands it back to him. Boom, they arrest him. Felon in possession of a firearm. So as opposed to Pacow's and Ralph, who abided by their, um, you know, the terms of, of their probation or supervision or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Devaroli didn't. And as a result of that, Deveroli ended up getting six years? I want to say six years. Yeah, yeah. I think he ended up getting six years. Or was it four? Might have been six or four. I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Using a homeless man's identity, he once borrowed nearly $1.5 million dollars just to see if he could. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime. But when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. Devaroli shows up on the compound in late 2011. I'm on the compound in, in uh, Coleman, Florida. I'm in the low-security prison. I've just finished my book. Deveroli shows up. I read, I had a a guy by the name, uh, uh, I had a a guy I used to hang out with, we called him slow motion, slow motion because he had a hernia and and Coleman, they wouldn't fix it. So he walked around like this real slow. Anyway, so we called him slow motion. So slow motion, I'm standing in line with slow motion and he says, Hey man, you know that Rolling Stone article I gave you the other day? And I go, yeah. He said, you know, the guy in the Rolling Stone article, he was the, the kid. I go, the arms kid. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, he's sitting right over there. And I go, get the fuck out of there. Sure enough, there was Deveroli. Now, Deveroli, in most of the photos that I've ever seen, is actually thin. But he was overweight in prison. And he was overweight before he got to prison, just before he got to prison, because he had been on an ankle monitor and wasn't allowed to leave his house. So he'd just eaten and eaten. So all these pictures you see of Deveroli being like a fat guy and he's played by Jonah Hill, which is, you know, a guy that's clearly overweight also. He, um, um, he typically is not a fat guy. He's typically thin. The, the other thing about that article is if you read the Rolling Stone article, which was written by Guy Lawson about Pacquiao's and Devaroli is that, you know, he, conv- he basically makes them sound like, you know, stoners. And the truth is Devaroli is more of a cokehead. He told me, he said, I'm not really a stoner. I'm more of a cokehead." So, he basically was not super overweight, but he was when I saw him. He was overweight, but he was working out. He was trying to lose the weight. So I see him, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay, cool. And then my uh, motion says, yeah, bro, he's, he works out every single day. He's on the yard. He's been here for like a week or two. So I go, okay. So like the next day, I go out to the rec yard, and I'm walking around the track, and I look over, and there's Devaroli. And I walk up to him, and I go, hey, man, uh, what's your name? And he's like, Devaroli, why, what's up? And I said, yeah. I said, listen, my name's Matt Cox um i write books uh, i just finished my own memoir i was wondering if you were if you were trying to if you were doing anything with your story he's like what do you mean i said like are you trying to write a story and he goes no i'm not no why i'm not really because i could i don't think i could write one and i go why He goes, ah man he's he i'm bipolar he said i'm 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 up and down all the time i don't think i could focus long enough i said bro you i read that rolling stone article like what you did was incredible like you got to be pretty bright. You should be able to focus long enough to write a story. I said, at the very least, you could write an outline and have a, a ghostwriter on the street write it. Because here's what people don't realize about Deveroli is that Devaroli's crime, what he ended up defraud, what they, they call it, it was basically it was a fraud. It was de- he was defrauding the United States government by selling them Chinese ammunition. So they, they hit him with a fraud charge. His fraud charge, he defrauded the United States government by $43,000. That's what his fraud charge is. He, and he paid it. He paid the 43000 before he even showed up for, you know, he just cut him a check. So Devaroli had made millions and millions of dollars. So this guy's got four or five, had four or five million dollars just sitting around, right? So I was like, bro, you clearly have enough money. Why wouldn't you get a ghostwriter to write your story for you? And he goes... Well, I don't even think I could write an outline. I don't even know how to. I said, "Bro, I just finished my book. I can help you write an outline." And he was like, "Yeah, I'll think about it." And I go, oh, "Okay." And I, he was really very arrogant. So I keep walking the track. And maybe a couple of days later, I saw him. I said, "Hey, man. So what do you, what do you want to do? If you need my help, I'll help you out." And he's like, well, "Why would you do that?" I said, "Bro, I just do it just to help you out. I got nothing else to do." I said, "I've all I'd already decided I wanted to start writing other inmate stories." I'm just looking for one. And yours would be great. I can help you hone my skills, help you out, see how the process works. Like, that's all I'm thinking. Well, he goes, oh, let me think. I'll think about it, bro. I'll think about it. So we see each other. Listen, I swear to you, we continued back and forth but for like a month or two. It starts coming up on, I want let's say, November or December. And he, every time I see him on the compound, we'd be walking by each other. And he'd go, bro, still thinking about it. And I'd be like, <laughs> like, you douchebag. So, you know, I could get, like, at this point, it's like, okay. Like, I'm trying to help you out. So then one day he sees me. He goes, hey, bro, what's up? What's up? Hey. What's your what, what you name? Matt. Matt, I go, yeah. He goes, hey, um, Matt, listen, man. He said, did you hear that they, that Guy Lawson, the guy who wrote the story on, in Rolling Stone about my case? And I went, right. He goes, he just optioned the life rights of, or, or or the film rights to the story. He just optioned the film rights to the story. I go okay. He said yeah yeah bro. Um, he goes he said he. I go who bought it? And he goes uh oh, Warner Brothers bought it. Um he said yeah yeah Rat Pack uh, Entertainment I think they call it. He goes you know the guys that do the Hangover movies. And I went I was like, like that's like Bradley Cooper and like Todd Phil like Todd Phillips like who. And he goes, yeah, man. He's, he's they Hangover movies. They're they're gonna make a, the guys that do the Hangover movies. They're gonna make a movie about my life. And I went, wow. And he's like, right, cool, right. And I went, wow, bro. I said, <laughs> I said you seem like a pretty smart guy. And he goes, right. And I went, you're telling me that the guys that made the Hangover movies are gonna make your movie. Yeah. And I went. You, have you ever seen the Hangover movies? I said, the guys in the Hangover movies are clowns. These guys are going to make a movie about you, and you're going to be a clown. I said, you're going to have to leave. Like, I know you. this seems like you're in here forever, but the truth is you'll be out of here in a few years. I said, in a couple of years, you're going to walk out of here. You're going to walk through the front gates. You're going to leave, and you're going to have to go back to being a businessman. And let's face it, you're going to be a laughingstock. If they make a movie about you, I said, you're going to be synonymous with with Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like you're going to be a joke, bro. And he was just like. Like, wow. Wow. He goes. And I, I said, wow, I just thought you were smarter than that. And I turn around, I kind of walk away and he, and, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. He goes, when can we do it? When can we do it? So I go, well, I mean, you know, we can, we can work on it. Uh, and anyway, we, we, it's, we still didn't meet for like a month. Uh, you know, he's just, he was such a nut nut job. So we end up meeting like a month later. And I'm sure I've gone over some of this before, right? So I've gone over some of this before. It's a little repetitive, but you're getting more detailed now. And I'll explain how it ends up, how I, when I, I end up suing him. So what happens is, so that happens. And I end up. Writing, working with him to write an outline. Well, once I write the outline of the book, I'm, I'm just finishing the outline. He says, "Hey, can I read your book?" And I go, "Sure." So I bring him a copy of my book, and a few days later, he hands it back and he goes, "Bro, that's amazing. That's an amazing book. That's the best thing I've ever read." And look, to be honest, look, to be he, I later found out he's read three or four books his entire life. Like most of what he reads is newspaper articles and stuff. So who knows. Not that it's not a good book, but still. Um, he read my book. Shark in the Housing Pool. So he read the book, and he loved it. And he said, hey, I want you to write my book. And I said, wow, you could get a professional writer. He goes, nah, bro, he's your professional writer. I want you to write, write my book. And I was like, um, okay. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, uh, do you have somebody that can represent us? And I went, I mean, you could try and find somebody. I said, to be honest, I said, I I have a guy that's representing me. Like he's just now kind of putting everything together. Like all of this is happening at the same time. Like, so we can, we can, you know, uh, we can talk to him. Well, I start writing the book right away and I'm writing the book and Rowley, as I'm writing the book, he ends up getting like an entertainment agent to come see him to write up a contract. Um, and this was an entertain some entertainment agent from like Orlando or something. She drives uh, out there and meets with Deveroli. At the same time, I have Devaroli schedule a meeting with his, with his mother or sister, his mom and sister and his brothers come to see him. And I end up having Ross Reback come see me at the same exact time. So Ross can meet Deveroli. So Ross ends up. We we both end up going to visitation at the same time, and we get there, and they end up meeting um, Ross. We all end up sitting together, and so Ross basically—and I remember his sister was there, and his sister was furious. I mean, His mom was furious and everything. Like, you scheduled a business meeting? Like, we just drove four hours from Miami to be here—four or five hours, really—to be here. And you're gonna. And he's like, hey, "It'll take 30 minutes." Or so. We t- we all sat down. We talked for like an hour or so. And Ross kind of gives them his pitch, and says he can what he can. He thinks he can do, and you know he thinks he can monetize the whole thing, and that's fine. So that ends up it, meeting ends up ending. And then there's another meeting where his sister, Deverolly's sister, comes. So now it's Deveroli and his sister, and me and Ross, and we all end up going to visitation at the same time. Bam. We have to be there at the same time because Ross is unable to get on Devaroli's visitation by himself. So I have to be there. So we're both there at the same time. And I'm at this point I'm I'm writing his story. And the great thing about Deveroli was, you know, you know, as much as I, I may have issues with the guy, he's brilliant. He has um, his mind works like a, a steel drum. I mean, nothing escapes it. And and on top of that he could recall details and dates like nobody I've ever met. Like I can't recall. I'm, I've been off. Listen, when I was writing my story and I was getting in all my Freedom of Information Act and putting everything together, like there were sometimes I was thinking, okay, well that was 2001. Nope, that was 2002. Like I'd be off by six months or a year on some of the things that I had to track down. Deveroli was like, yeah, that was uh that was uh, that was March uh, March. I, I want to say it was March 6th. Yeah, March 6th. 2000, March 6th of 2000, that's when that happened, it was like and then I get a document in sure enough, March 6th like everything he was spot on on almost every single date and the names of the people, I'm horrible with names matter of fact, I think when I talked told this story last time, instead of saying Jeff Spicoli, I said David Spicoli, people crucified me, I must have had 30 people say, nah bro, it's David, not, I mean, it's Jeff, not David. So, um, Devaroli was, and, and look, he, his, he was just super, a super sharp guy. Okay. Despicable human being, but as a, a sharp guy and very smart, um, anyway, work ethic. Like you can't believe, like all he wants to do is work. Well, he ends up one day I'm writing, well, what happens? Sorry, what happens is one day we're all in the visitation, we're talking, and Ross Reback and Devaroli are going back and forth, back and forth, and I remember Ross kind of lays out all of the things that he'd done over his life and all of his successes, and Devaroli's sister says, "Well, maybe you just get maybe you just get lucky." And he goes, well, if I get lucky, I get lucky a lot. And I remember, and I said, I like, go, well, I'd rather be lucky than good. And and so it was just like, boom, like we hit her, bam, bam. And she just shook her head. And Deveroli starts laughing. And he's and he's like, yeah, I, I definitely think we we need to, we can work together. Well, while we're saying that, Ross says the most important thing is getting the book finished as quickly as possible and he they you know they kind of look at me and I'm like well I mean I'm writing I have the outline and I'm writing but you know it's going to take time well the problem was that Debra Rowley was getting moved to the Miami camp very soon as a result of being moved to the Miami camp I only had another few weeks or a month with him and I did have the outline but it was, it was it was like a mad dash. You're trying to write a 300-page book within a month or two. Like, that's difficult. So, luckily, I mean, Devaroli did have a ton of his documentation. So, we're going back and forth, back and forth, and we're talking. And Ross was like, we have to get the book done and published before the movie. Or, keep in mind, at this point, they haven't even made a movie yet. They had optioned the film rights to the movie, and they were and Warner Brothers was writing a having a script written, but the script it turns out the script when they when they went to Jonah Hill, Jonah Hill wasn't happy with the script. Supposedly, and this is what I was told later, was that because it didn't have enough in there about Jonah Hill or about Deverolli's character. Now, so this is they don't even know that the, listen. Movies are optioned all the time. Let's say Hollywood options a thousand movies a year, right? The the various studios they make three, so they pay for a thousand different options. They end up making three. So the average studio makes about three movies, three major motion pictures a year. I mean, you know, the likelihood this was going to get made. It, was slim to none it was possible but there's lots and lots of movies that i'm sure you stories i'm sure you can think of that you're like that was amazing that was it like oh my gosh oh that's great that's wonderful and that's going to be a movie that's got to be a movie but it wasn't they just don't happen like there's just too many great stories for there to be for there to be that many movies not that there's not a ton of content it's just that's just especially back at this time um well, Deborah, uh, so Rebat keeps saying, we got to get a book out. We got to get a book out. And I keep telling him it's going to take time. It takes time. It takes time. And he's like, look, it's important we get a book out. And and I'm like, well, what is the rush? He says, one, I want to get a book out because that way we can we can try and get a publishing deal and get our book out before, um, before Guy Lawson puts out his book. Guy Lawson had written an article in Rolling Stone, and he was turning it into a book. So, we, one, we wanted our book out first. Two, Ross said, if I can get our book out first, I can try and get a, a series made or a, our, our own movie made. And if we can get our movie greenlit before Warner Brothers movie, most likely they will not do a movie. And our version will come out. Okay, that makes sense to me too. They weren't that far ahead of us. Um, the third thing was, he said, because uh, basically uh, Devaroli goes, yeah, well, what if that doesn't work out? He goes, if that doesn't work out, he or he says, he goes, if that doesn't work out and Warner Brothers makes the movie, and Devaroli goes, yeah. Reback said, then we'll sue them for theft of intellectual property. And we're all sitting there, and I remember being like, right, right, going, that doesn't make sense. How can you, theft of what? He was theft of, of his story. And I went, yeah, but the movie isn't being made based on Devaroli's story. It's being made based on David Packhouse's version of the story. A lot of people don't understand this, but. So I I have a girlfriend, Jess. If Jess were to tell her version of she and I's story and say, hey, I met this guy in the halfway house, and we we had this on-again, off-again, you know, romance, and then we ended up getting married, and we had three kids, and it was wonderful, and it's it's a love story. Okay. I can't sue Jess. Like, I can sue her, but it's not going to go anywhere because they're going to say, why are you suing? Well, she told my story. No, no. She told her version of our story, which she's allowed to do. Now, the, the, the other... The other exclusion of that is that, of course, I'm also allowed to tell our story. On top of that, because Roly and Packhouse's story was, was in the public um, forum, right? So if there were multiple newspaper articles about their story, about being arrested, about them selling all of these, all this munitions to... Uh, Afghanistan security forces and getting a contract with the government. There's all these articles about it. That also excludes any right to privacy that they have. So for example, you have a right to privacy. For example, let's say my neighbor and I, me and uh, me and Ted, I think everybody knows who Ted is. If they've ever watched uh, Big Herc and I's uh, interview, my neighbor, my neighbor's named Ted. So Ted and I, do you know what I'm talking about? It's, you have to watch the Big Herc. Big Herc uses the example of Ted, Ted. Oh, Ted? So Ted, you and Ted go to barbecues together? So Ted and I, me and my neighbor Ted go to barbecues together. Um, well, if Ted's telling me stuff about he and his wife's relationship and him and how he hates his job at Walmart, well, let's say I'm a writer and I turn around and I write a book about Ted. Ted can sue me because the truth is Ted has an expectation of privacy. He was just telling a neighbor, you know, like he 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 didn't expect any of that to be public. He didn't tell me for it to be public. He has an expectation. Now, if Ted were arrested for robbing banks and I wrote an article about Ted because I read all the newspaper articles on Ted and said he happens to be my next door neighbor, that's different. Now he's in the public. He's in the public life in the public forum. He loses that expectation. And if Ted is a public figure, for instance, there's probably 50 books written on President uh, Barack Obama. He can't sue. Barack Obama cannot sue. Why? Because you're a public figure. So you lost your expectation of privacy. Secondly, if you're found guilty of a crime— and I even if it's not in the newspaper, and I were to go to public records and look up all of your indictment and, and all of the motions and read and, and read your transcripts and write a whole story based on that. Once again, you're a criminal and your information is in the public is in public records. I'm allowed to use that and write a book. You've lost your expectation of privacy. So Deborah Rowley had no prayer on expectation of privacy. So I sat there and I said. I don't uh, to Ross back in the we're back in the uh, visitation room. I was like, I don't understand. Like, he doesn't have an expectation of privacy. They didn't steal his intellectual property because I haven't even created his unique intellectual property. Because some intellectual property is still unique, if that makes sense. So, for instance, let me give you an example. Let's say there you're you were arrested for robbing banks, and it tells all about the bank robberies. Well, that doesn't mean that you still have an expectation of privacy as far as your family is concerned in your private life. Like how – if I were to write a whole article about you – or a whole book about you robbing banks, and then I were to turn around and start telling you things that I knew about your family because your wife had confided in me or your friends had confided in me or something along those lines, like personal stories, well, then those were stories that unless we had some kind of an agreement – you. You told me these stories not expecting a book to be written. Unless I told you, hey, I'm an author, I'm a writer, and I'm going to write a book, then you lose your expectation. But if I just told you because we were friends, now you have, you own, or you have an expectation. So I was like, I don't know. And that doesn't, I don't think that works the way you think, Ross. And he goes, no, no. He said, I can, trust me, we can sue them for theft of intellectual property. And then Ross said, we just have to get the book out there. And we just have to be in a. We have to have the book available for consumption in some manner. And we just have to allude to the fact that Warner Brothers obtained the book and used DeVaroli's book to write the movie War Dogs or to write the screenplay using DeVaroli's book. So we need. So, Matt, I need you to write the book as quickly as possible so that we can get it published first. Or, at the very least, have a manuscript to circulate so that if they make a movie, we can accuse them of having stolen his intellectual property. And Deborah really loved it he loved the idea of it. Trevor goes, "Oh my god." He goes, "You know what? He goes, "I have a cousin that lives in LA and he he th- he's, he says he's in the entertainment industry." And he goes and, I, and <laughs> Ross goes, "Is he?" And he goes, "Well, he's kind of a schmuck." He said uh, he said I don't think he's much of he goes, he's kind of a douchebag, but he said regardless, he goes, regardless, he um he said regardless, he goes, "He thinks he is and he knows a bunch of players." He said, we could probably get him the book and get him to end up connecting us somehow. Like, I don't know, but we can use them somehow. And Ross was like, okay, well, you know, we'll think about it. He goes, the first thing is we have to get the book made. And I was like, and I go, I I don't even know why you're talking about suing Warner Brothers. He goes, no, Matt, he goes, that's just a fallback. I'm just saying, he goes, Ross goes, look, if we're going to dump a bunch of time in this and you're going to write the book, he said, we need to be able to monetize it in some way. He goes, my first course of action is for you to write a book, publish the book, and we're going to have a bestseller, and we're going to get ourselves a series or a movie made. He goes, that's the first course of action. And I was like, um, okay, okay. Because like I, I don't have any intentions of suing anybody. I'm locked up in prison. I just want to become a writer. I still had at this point in my life, man, I still had, I still had, Jesus. I probably still had almost 20 years to go. Like I still, I'm still expecting to be getting out. If I don't lose any good time, if I'm a good boy, if I'm a good boy, I get out in 2030. This is, this is probably 2011, maybe 2012, maybe early January, February, maybe of 2012 at this point. So I start writing the book. Devaroli comes to me one day and he says, hey, here's our contract. And he slides a contract across to me and he says, here, here it is. He's sign here, sign here. And he's like already signed. And I went, um, well, I don't understand. And I I said, well, what does it say? He goes, bro, he goes, it just, it says we're partners. And on the top of the contract, I want to say it said something like partnership agreement, work for hire, which I didn't know what work for hire meant. Because it just means that like, like I, don't, I, you know, it's like basically we're partners, but you know, I'm hiring you as my, as a partner. Like he kind of briefly explains it. And to be honest, like I was so excited, excited to be a part of the project. Like I just signed it because I, I trusted what he was saying. Like I didn't realize what a scoundrel the guy was. And I thought it doesn't really matter. Ross is involved. He's not going to screw me over. So I'm good. So I signed a contract. Sign the contract. I keep writing the book as I'm writing the book more and more red flags are showing up like there's more and more things that i'm realizing like wow this guy's a scoundrel like he's telling me more and more stories that are just horrific about him basically like bait and switch he's doing what's called a bait and switch he's he's doing things like he would go in and what's so funny is like this is like one of the reasons he probably doesn't even want the book out (laughs) is because he's doing stuff like he would go in and Let's say for like helmets, he would go in and order. He'd have an an order for like 10,000 helmets. And he would go into a manufacturer and say, look, I need these helmets for, let's say the helmets are going for $200. He'd say, I need them for $100. And they'd go, that's crazy. And they'd argue with him. And he'd say, I have a contract for 100,000 helmets. I have a 100,000 helmet order from the U.S. government. But I need the best deal possible. So they come down to, let's say, $110 a helmet. And he goes, okay. He goes. The first task order is for ten thousand, and they give him ten thousand at that price. That reduced, that super reduced price because they think they're going to sell a hundred thousand. And he pays them. And then he, when they say, hey, um, we're, we're doing the next order now, he calls them a week or two weeks before they're due, and he says, hey, listen, you're not going to believe this. They canceled the order. But he got the ten thousand at hundred and ten dollars. Should have paid a hundred or two hundred. got a reduced a reduced price because they thought they were selling 100,000 like these are the kinds of things that he's doing you know or he would go and he basically said like it was a legal bait and switch where he would go in and he would you really have to (laughs) he, he would go in and he would say um he would he would he would bid on a contract for let's say sniper rifles for let's say night night sniper rifles. He would bid on a contract for sniper rifles at they cost $2000. Let's say really honestly, they cost like 3500 bucks. He 3500, but maybe if you bought a bunch of them you get them for like 2500. He would go in and say I can get them for $2000 a piece and he's going to get 2000 of them. Let's say it's 2 million dollars. A 2 million dollar order or something. I don't know the exact numbers, but a point is is that the government says, okay, fine, We're, you won the bid because a lot of people are bidding on it. He wins the bid. Great. He then turns around weeks later and goes to the government and says, listen, I want to fulfill this order for you. But it turns out that knight armaments cannot, they cannot fulfill the contract in time. But I can I can provide you with an equivalent prod, um, uh, product. And that's allowed in the contracts. In those contracts, you're allowed to give them an equivalent. So he would say, "Here's the specs for the night for the night sniper rifle. Here is the specs for the Panther sniper rifle. The night sniper rifle is made in the United States. The Panther sniper rifle is made in South Korea. And they go for fifteen hundred bucks. And he would then." So so now the government comes in and the U.S. government says, "Well, can you get them there to us on time?" And he says, "Yes, I can." He says, "Okay, we'll." They go, "We'll go with that." But keep in mind, this is some purchasing officer in in um, in uh, Iraq. This is a purchasing officer in Iraq who's probably a twenty-two-year-old kid who doesn't care. If they meet the specs, fine. We'll take those. Then he turns around, and goes to Panther, and he. Argues with him to to the point where he can get the sniper that Panther sniper sniper rifle for eleven hundred bucks. So imagine he underbid the he never he never was gonna gonna give you the 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 night the night sniper rifle. You were never gonna get those like that two thousand dollars that he said he was gonna get them for or twenty five hundred dollars. He was never gonna give them to you for that. So he he got him. He's now selling Panther sniper rifles for double what you could buy them brand new off the fucking shelf. And he sends them to the government and they get them and they pay him and he's made a ton of money and he's thrilled. And, you know, so he's telling me these types of things and he's laughing and joking about it. And I'm just like, Jesus, bro, like this is, this is rough. Like I, and I remember thinking, what did I sign with this guy? So. What ends up happening is Ross comes to see me. One day he comes to see me and I'm still writing the book. And he says to me, hey, Matt, he says, how how are you doing? I said, listen, I said, this guy, by the way, is despicable. And I said, the more I look at him and write his stuff, I said, the more like it's just he he's just, he's, he's just, I said, he's just like, not like a good guy. And I'm not saying I'm a great guy, but he's, I was like, I'm, I'm like, this is not good. Like, there's just no redeemable qualities about him. And he goes, look, he said, like, write it in such a way, write it. In, we need him to be a sympathetic character. And I said, the best you're going to get with him is maybe you can, we can get him being like a, um, like a, a Jack Sparrow type character from Pirates of the Caribbean, like a lovable rogue, you know, like he's he's a bad guy, but you kind of love him because he's funny and comical. He goes, well, then do that. Make him funny. Make him comical. Make him thinking funny things in his head. Make him, and he does say funny stuff. So I was like, okay, I can try and do that. I was like, I can try and do that. I said, but to be honest, I, do, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to, you know, by this point, Deveroli is like, he's he's like leaving. And I'm, and, and I th- actually, Dev actually, I want to say Dev Rolly was at this meeting. Was he talking to his sister? Anyway, I'm talking to Ross and I'm like, listen, man, like, I, I just don't know. And I had written a book called Stranger Danger. So months earlier, I had written a, 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 like a, kind of like a, a social satire about sex offenders um, and just about housing sex offenders and it was like this satirical it was, it was just, just this super kind of devious sick sadistic funny kind of book right about this guy that ends up housing sex offenders and and turning him into like um, you know modern day um, like slave labor force and so and so it's it's, it's like a comedy. But a dark, dark, dark comedy, anyway. And Ross had read it and said, "Look, it's it's funny." He said, "I don't know if there's a market for it." He goes, "But it is comical." And I remember saying, "Listen, Deveroli is is I said the, the guy that the lead character in Stranger Danger has more has better qualities in him than than this," I said, "than Deveroli does." Like, he's a more sympathetic character than Deveroli is. And he, and I said, plus I said, there's just, and, and he goes, well, I don't know. I read that book. He said, like, he's like, and there were funny parts about that guy. And there were, there are parts of it where you kind of like him. And I said, you know, he has a lot in common with Devaroli. Like, he has a mother that is constantly, you know, uh, bugging him. and 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 there's all, there's a lot of similarities. And he goes, well, listen, he said, I need you to finish the book as quick as possible. He goes, pull scenes out of that book. And put them into Deveroli's book. He said, to just to, to get it done as quickly as possible. Now keep in mind, I'm a work for hire. So I'm not writing this as a journalist. I'm someone that you hired to write your book the way you want it written. And so I was like, Jeez, bro. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, he goes, No, he's look, it doesn't matter. It's based on his story. It's based on his story kind of like frank abagnale's book is based on frank abagnale's story the truth is a lot of that stuff is exaggerated and inflated and in some of frank abagnale's um, case it's completely fictionalized so uh, there's another book called um a dangerous mind i think it's called a dangerous mind anyway there's several books that were written based on they're based on the guy's life so Ross is going, look, we're going to do it. It's based on his life anyway. I just need the intellectual property created so that we can try and get a book deal and we can try and get a movie deal or something. And I went, okay, that's fine. I said, I'll finish it. So I pull a bunch of scenes from Stranger Danger and I throw them into Deveroli's book. Now, that book ends up, when I'm finished with the book and I send it to Reback, I remember Reback Telling me he he had it he got it like whatever on let's say a, a Tuesday, and like Thursday I called him and I said hey what's up he said I just finished it I said oh what did you think and I'm expecting a whole bunch of rewrites like he kind of did a bunch of rewrites on my book like edits and he came back and he said man you knocked it out of the park he was just amazing you did an amazing job he said my only problem is you made Coleman the prison. He you made it sound like a, a, a summer camp, like a rough high school summer camp. You made it sound like it was a joke. And I go, it is kind of a joke. It's not like a real prison. I said, like, I've been to real prisons. I go, this isn't a real prison. They're, not that people aren't getting stabbed and it's not violent. I said, but, you know, look, half the fucking guys here are sex offenders. And I said, and to be honest with you, I said, the other half are soft as cotton. Not that you don't get guys that are tough guys and stabbing each other and fist fights and stuff. But I said, it's not as bad as the medium. And he goes, it doesn't matter. It's still prison. I need you to rewrite it and make it sound like hell. And I went, okay. So I rewrote the very last page and made it sound like the prison was, you know, just this this really brutal, rough spot that's just a horrible, horrible place to be. Not that prison's not horrible, but in general, it wasn't as bad as I made it out. As made, As bad as I made it out to be. Well, now I've got the book. It's done, and Ross ends up telling me one day I am calling because now what Ross has done is he's kind of connected my book with Deveroli's book. He he was holding off the whole time on pitching my book to Simon and Schuster and all these to act. He's acting as my as literary agent for me, but he didn't want to do it. He kept saying, well, I want to hold off so I can pitch both of the projects because he was saying getting yourself in the meeting is the hardest part. Once you're in the meeting, you want to be able to have multiple projects. So if you tell – if I pitch them Stranger – if I pitch them uh, Devaroli's book, he said then – and they say, no, I want to say, well, I've got this other book. He said, or if they say, we love Deveroli's book, I can also say, you love that one, you're going to love this one, too. And I was like, okay, I get it. So he's holding me off. He's holding me off on him pitching my book. But now he's got two books. So I was like, okay, cool, cool. Uh, so by this point, keep in mind, deveroli has been moved. Deveroli's now in the medium security prison. I'm in, in, um, medium. Deveroli's now in the camp in Miami. He's now in, in Miami. In uh, I think he's in the RDAP program in Miami. Um, I have to drink this. Hold on. Like the the when I have less coffee in me, I start making mistakes. Well, so I basically wrote literally about half of that book without Deverol even being there. Now, Ross sent the book to Devaroli, and Devaroli reads the whole book. And he comes back and tells Ross, it's amazing. It's a great book. Which is funny because, you know, portions of the book are fictionalized or completely... Either they're fictionalized or they're they're embellished in such a way that, you know, Deveroli obviously he knows, like, part, like, that never happened. Like, that never happened. That never happened. He also knows, like, oh, yeah, that did happen, but not like that. Like, that's not what happened. That wasn't the guy. That wasn't – for instance, there's a part in the book <laughs> – there's a part in the book where Devaroli and his buddies sneak up on this guy and – there's a like a security guard that kicks them off of a. They were playing like basketball and they were like fourteen or fifteen years old, and I remember Deveroli had told me that the guy was he was like a a Cuban guy that come over and like that, that was just trying to like make a living. Like he was a nice guy, and Devaroli and his buddies like mouth off to him, and the guy's like, "Come on, you guys can't be here." And, you know, you have to leave. He's like, so we leave. He's like, the guy was just doing his job. But, you know, we were pissed. He said, so we went home and we got our paintball guns. And they waited until the lights went out. And they shot him. Four or five guys shoot him up with their paintball guns. And the guy's screaming and hollering and yelling. And they shoot him up with the paintball guns. He calls the police. The police come and they they end up, you know, running back to uh, running back home. Well, of course, I end up having to rewrite that whole scene. Devaroli, when he read it, was like, because Ross told me. Well, you know, um, Devaroli said that you know he's he was laughing about how you changed some of the scenes where like like I, I he's like he said that guy was just a hardworking guy, and I ended up saying like he was he had a mullet, he was a white guy, he was had a mullet, he was a, a you could tell he was a former football. Uh, former uh, football champion in high school. He had a pop belly. He was, you know, like I, I have him say all these things. He's dipping. Like uh, like I make him a very unsympathetic character. He's mouthing off to the got kids. He's telling them like uh, he's calling them names and, and pushing them around. And like they're just little kids. And then they run home and get their stuff. So you, when they shoot him, you feel like, oh, good, he has it coming. But the truth is he didn't have it coming at all. He's just doing his job. Like you can't be on the on. You cannot be on the courts this late. They, they're closed. You have to leave. Well, so you re I rewrote that whole thing because they wanted him to be a sympathetic character. I can't have you running around with a paintball gun shooting security guards who are just doing their job. Like you know, like especially an immigrant who's you know he's Hispanic. Like okay, now you look like you're a racist or something. Like I can yeah, but you can shoot a white guy. So I get I have him shoot a white guy with a mullet who's a. And Ross, of course, loved it and laughed and said, that was a great, oh, that's great, I love it. And But I did that throughout the whole book. I'm altering things to make Deveroli look as good as possible because you can't make him look the way he truly is. Like, Jonah Hill made Deveroli look soft and cuddly in that movie compared to the real Deveroli. So, back to the story. What ends up happening is I got the book, they love the book, they're all into the book, and Ross calls me up one day and tells me, I said, hey, so how's it? Oh, he didn't call me up. I'm in prison. He doesn't call me. Nobody calls me. I'm in prison. So I call him up one day, and I say, listen, Ross, um, hey, what's going on? And he goes, oh, it's going great, man. Like, I just had a meeting with Simon & Schuster. Uh, I said, okay. He said, um, I've been talking. To, he'd been talking to screenwriters. He's talking to. Uh, he, had, he had a contact at Simon & Schuster. They had read the book. They loved it. They read my book. The guy loved it. He said he was getting a deal with Simon & Schuster for both Devaroli's book and my book. That's huge. Like, that's huge. So, I'm excited. And the other thing he tells me is he's got the manuscript, and Devaroli's cousin, who is in L.A., had put him in contact with another kid who was a producer. His mom is the producer. His mother... There was a movie called Blackfish about orcas. You ever heard of that? Like 20 years ago. Anyway, his mother owned a production company that did documentaries, and she had done a super successful documentary called Blackfish. Blackfish. Well, her son... I forget his name. Was partners with another kid. And they... They, the Devaroli's cousin had talked to them and said, look, my cousin's Ephraim Devaroli. He just finished his memoir. Would you guys like to see it? Here yeah, I, I have the manuscript. And they said, we would love to see it. And so I'm, I'm like, oh, that's great. And Ross says what's even better is that one of the two partners, a guy by the name of Shimmy, this is, I'm sure it's a nickname, right? Shimmy's father is I forget his name. I have it written down. somebody Spira uh, who is one of the not CEO one of the presidents. He's a president, not the president. there's they have multiple presidents. He's one of the presidents of Warner Brothers. And I was like, oh okay. I said, so you want Shimmy to give the manuscript to his dad? And Ross says, no, 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 you don't understand. he said, Jonah Hill and Miles Teller have signed on to play Devaroli and Pacquiao's. They're probably going to get the movie made. It's too late for us to get the movie made. He said, but these guys are signing on and they're rewriting the script right now. And I went, um, Okay. And I said, so I don't understand. He said, well, I'm wait-. He, I am think he had, was waiting for those two guys, Shimmy and the other guy, to get them NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. He had sent them non-disclosure agreements saying, I'll send you the manuscript, but you can't give it to anybody. They were like, okay. So they signed them and sent them back. He goes, once I get them back, I'll send them the manuscript. And I was like, okay, I don't understand. He goes, well, the fact that his father is, the head of the studio, uh, one of the one of Warner Brothers Studios, he's a friend of the president's. He goes, "It just it just works to our advantage. That's all. It just it just helps us." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." And I didn't really understand. You have to understand by this point. I'm already writing other people's books. Like at this point, I was writing a book called "Bailout." Ooh, sorry, "Bailout." Let's go this one. I like this one. This one's better for the book. This angle, I think, is better for the book. So bailout, which was a guy by the name of Mark Marcus Shrinker. So at this point, I've got guys lining up saying, Bro, I want to, you to write my book. So I wrote the book Bailout. Putting that one there. So I remember being like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. To Ross like okay cool Like I, I, this is just a phone call where I'm telling him what I'm doing Because he would send me we would send emails back and forth He'd be like bro he'd be like call me tonight uh, Tell me uh, so we can talk I'd call he'd say hey here's what's going on with Deveroli. I'd go okay he'd go what's going on with Shrinker And I'd tell him what's going on with Shrinker And he was ordering documents for me for Shrinker And mailing me stuff for, like he's helping me with Shrinker and I'm like okay Even though he didn't want to represent me on Shrinker's book He's like no I absolutely don't want to represent you Because Shrinker's a scoundrel More so than most people yeah, definitely. More so than definite, most people. So I'm like, okay, cool. So we're talking, and he tells me the thing about Shimmy. And I'm like, all right, cool. No big deal. I end up getting off the phone. I'm writing Shrinker's book. I end up finishing Shrinker's book. And I, I end up, uh, I finished Shrinker's book, and I end up working on, um, I start working on another book by this kid uh, for this guy, uh, Douglas Dodd. So Doug Dodd ends up, um, following me around really to be honest Doug Dodd is following me around and um begging me to write his book it was called uh um, the book at the time I was calling it um I called it oh god I called it, oh I called it um oxy rush we were calling it oxy rush so uh and and Doug I remember Doug Dodd comes up to me it was just a, it was a it was a story about a bunch of kids who were selling pills in, uh, um, in um, Hudson, Florida, and they were doing doctor shopping. Uh, they were selling uh, uh, oxycodone. So I remember Dodd follows me one day. He's like, "Bro, can you? I you. Gotta write my book. You gotta write my story." And I was like, "You don't even have a story." And and we're going back and forth. And he goes, "Bro," I remember he said, "He goes, I'll give you fucking half of anything. I'll uh, anything I make, I'll give you half." And I said, "Of course you're gonna give me half." So you think I was going to write it for less than half? Like are you insane? Not only are you you know by this point I already realized like like I should be getting these guys to attach their life right store the everything across the board to these stories because they can't write their own stories. So anyway, I end up writing Doug Dodd's story. He built some of the nation's largest banks out of an estimated 55 million dollars because 50 million wasn't enough and 60 million seemed excessive he is the most interesting man in the world i don't typically commit crimes but when i do it's bank fraud stay greedy my friends support the channel join matthew cox's patreon i tell dodd you don't even have a fucking story i said here's what, what i'll do bro i was like here's what i'm gonna do I'll write your story. I'll write a synopsis of your story. It'll be six or seven thousand words. I think it was six or seven. It was like seven or eight thousand, something like that. I'll write them, and that's basically like a really large article. I said I'll write the story. I'm going to send that synopsis off to a bunch of different um, reporters, and I'll try and get you into like Rolling Stone or Esquire or Vanity Fair, something. I'll try and get you into one of these. One of these you know, one of these magazines, if I can get you into a magazine, I said, then I'll write your book. But right now I'm just going to write a synopsis because I don't think you have a, I don't think there's much of a story here. And I didn't know much of the story, to be honest with you. I just didn't like Dodd. So he was, he was like pleading with me to do this. So I said, okay, so I write a story. I write his synopsis. I write the whole synopsis. I send it to Seven or eight different art, uh, reporters. A couple of them write back, say, wow, it's amazing. You're an amazing storyteller. I don't have time to do it. I'm sorry. Or they said, hey, it's an amazing story. If you could just give me six months to a year, I'd be willing to take on this project. I get one guy that writes me back, and it's Guy Lawson, the same guy that wrote, Devar- or wrote Ephraim Devaroli and Pacquiao's story in Rolling Stone. And Guy Lawson says, I could get to this right away. I said, okay, cool. Guy Lawson comes back. I'm not going to get into the issues I had with Guy Lawson, but we go back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, listen, man, like, I want, he said, I can get, I can write Dodd's story and get it into uh media magazine, which, and I was like, I've never heard of media magazine. He goes, oh, it's an online magazine. You have to understand, I, I'm in prison, so I don't have access to the internet. So I was like, I don't want it on an online magazine. I want it in, back, there, back then there was a magazine also called Maxim. Is there still Maxim? Anyway, I was like, I want it in Maxim. Or I want it in Rolling Stone magazine. Or I want it in Esquire. I want it in GQ. Like, I want it in a real magazine. I want to be able to hold it because I can't. He's like, well, I can print it off online and send you a copy. No, I want a magazine article. That's what I want. So he goes, we're going back and forth. Goes, well, that's just not how it works. And, and it's way I can get it in here and I can do this. And, do and I go, listen, you know what? Here, Here's what bothers me about this conversation. He goes, what? I said, I've sent you all the research. I wrote the entire article for you. I've done every, all the work for you. I said, you haven't even tried to get it into Rolling Stone. I said, now, if you'd already tried and you sent it to your editor and he read it and didn't want it, well, that's okay. We can talk about an online magazine. But I said, I mean, you're not even willing to try. And I said, if you're not willing to try, then I, I, I'll just wait till somebody for somebody that can try. Somebody will try. Like, I, I don't mind Failure. I mind not trying. And he went, all right, well, I'll see what I can do. So he calls his editor. His editor's name was, uh, fuck, I forget his first name. His last name's Wood. Anyway, goes to lunch with him, gives him the article. He reads it. He says, I want to put it in the magazine. So a few months later, the I, I, I immediately, by the way, as soon as I hear it's gonna be the magazine, I start writing Dodd's book. Um and but really to be honest, by the time I had finished the um writing the synopsis of his story, I liked the story. Like I had sat down with him for a couple for several hours, you know, probably spent ten hours just writing the synopsis, and I heard all the ins and outs of the story, and it was a good story. Like I liked it. And the the characters were likable, right? So and it was unique. There was a lot of cutesy, unique things about the story which were interesting. And and it wasn't just a regular bunch of scumbag kids um, doctor shopping. It was more than that, right? So it was, it was like—it was a good story. So, okay, so um, Guy Lawson says he's going to write the story. And Guy Lawson said, I'll write the story. And he said, the story's going to be—he said, I'm going to— use parts of the manuscript. Now by this point, Doug Dodd has left prison. He left prison and went to the halfway house. And he has the manuscript. He sends a manuscript to he sends a manuscript to Guy Lawson. Guy Lawson comes back and says, Matt, do you mind if I use some of the some of the manuscript that you wrote and some of the um the the you know the article that you wrote, the synopsis. And I was like, "Well, I don't know." He goes, "It's okay." He said, "I'm going to do that, but I'm going to give you credit." So, I it, the article will be from Gee Lawson and Doug Dodd and Matt Cox. And I went, "Oh wow!" He goes, "You'll have been you'll you'll be a writer for Rolling Stone magazine." I was like, "Holy shit!" Like, yeah, definitely. I want to do that. Let's do that. So, a few weeks before the article comes out. Key Lawson emails me and tells me that, oh, the guy's name is Sean. Sean Wood, the editor of Rolling Stone Magazine. Here's Sean Wood. said I talked to Sean Wood, and he doesn't want you and Doug to be the authors of the article. He said he said it'd be better if I gave you credit in the body of the work. And I go, no, 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 no. We agreed. We agreed. He said, no, no, Matt, it's Okay. I'm going to give you credit in the body of the work. It, it, it's, it's still your art. It's still your stuff. Like, I'm still going to talk, say that you did the story. You wrote the story. Like, he tells me all this bullshit. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's like, well, there's no other way. Like, this is it. That's the only way it's going to work. And I'm sorry. It's just it's just the way it is. And I was furious. But there's nothing I can do. I'm locked up in prison. There's nothing I can do. So the article comes out. So, the article comes out in Rolling Stone Magazine. Here it is. So let's go, let's go that one. Look, that's the front cover. Okay. i switch here. Huh? That's the article. Right? That's the article. He calls it The Dukes of Oxy by Guy Lawson. Guy Lawson didn't write any of this article. Guy Lawson. Pulled ninety-five percent of the of what's in here out of my synopsis that I sent him. He barely changed anything. He did, however, mention. Um, he did, however, mention right here um, that a while back Doug Dodd and his writing partner Matthew Cox sent me a document titled "Oxy Rush" from high school wrestling wrestlers to oxycodone kingpin asking if I might be interested in writing about the story more more pictures let's look more pictures it's more pictures of Don and and his b- high school buddies they've got Don more pictures of Don more pictures there's more pictures oh more pictures so more so it's a good side it's a good article it's good it, it was it was a good article like it wasn't great but it was good you know. Anything that Gee Lawson touched on the article that altered my story at all made it bad. I hated it. So, um anyway, no, it was it was a decent article. It was a decent article. And, you know, because Dodd and I had an agreement, you know, in writing that that I was gonna get a portion of the you know, we were splitting up the um his his uh, his rights. Um, Gee Lawson ended up optioning the 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 Rolling Stone article, so he optioned it to New Line Cinema. And an option is you know you that you give them eighteen months, they give you some money. Um, and you get, they get 18 months to turn it into a movie. And then in 18 months, if they haven't turned it into a movie, then they give you another, they get, they pay you again and they can extend it several times. This has been extended. I want to say four times. So he ends up, they end up optioning. And of course, Doug gets, some. Well, of course, Guy Lawson gets the lining share, line share of it. Um, Doug, Dog gets some money and I get some money, which is great because I'm in prison. I have no money. Um, and I, the, great, the best thing about that whole thing was that I was able to take this article and send it out to literary agents and get a book deal. Now, the reason I didn't go to Ross Reback and get a book deal is because at this point, I, Ross had not pitched my book yet. He hadn't pitched. He was pitching Devaroli's book. He'd pitched Deveroli's book and my book, but he, they didn't have a book deal. Like Simon & Schuster is trying to get them to sign. Devaroli isn't returning any letters. Like I've written him letters. I've tried to call him. Nothing. I've got nothing from this guy. Ross is telling me, well, Devaroli doesn't really feel like he should be talking to you. You know, like he just got out. He's concerned. He's on probation. He, he, he doesn't want to get in trouble for talking to a felon. Like it's it's all bullshit. And it, it just, it, I just was becoming more and more distrustful of everything Reback was saying. Also, by this point, Devaroli was being asked to be interviewed by um, the New York Times. We're talking about the New York Times, the LA Times. CNN wanted to do a documentary on Devaroli and his memoir and the writing of the memoir from inside of a federal prison with me so you're supposed to be promoting your memoir and you're not doing it you're not returning calls you're not doing any you're not doing anything and at this point i end up writing an i, I end up writing well that, that uh, look, look. What ends up happening is Ross and I, like, we're, we're having issues. Like, I'm, I'm pissed because what's happening is he he isn't focusing on getting a book deal. All he seems to be focusing on at this point, because at this point, they're now making the movie War Dogs. They're making the movie War Dogs, and all Reback seems to be concerned with is suing Warner Brothers. So now he's talking about suing Warner Brothers. at the same time when this article and everything's coming out and I'm excited I call Ross one day and Ross says to me hey what's going I'm, he's like hey how's it going i go oh it's going okay it's he's like you're not going to believe this and i go what he said i sent the i sent the manuscript that you wrote it, and by the way it's called once a gunrunner the 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 name of the manuscript is once a gunrunner Deverelli's memoir. So he goes, I sent once a gun runner to these two producers. One of them's name is Shimmy. And this is months after he'd originally told me this. And I was like, right, okay. He goes, well, I was talking to Shimmy and and his partner on the phone. I go, okay. And I was asking them how they were doing on trying to get funding to do a documentary about the manuscript. Okay, because that's what they had said they wanted to do And I said, right And he goes And while I was talking to them And they were telling me that the movie had been greenlit That there was no way To get a, a movie made at this point Because Warner Brothers Had greenlit the movie War Dogs And they were now going to start filming it And Jonah Hill had signed on And Miles Teller had signed on And they were going to be shooting within months Todd Phillips is involved, obviously. Bradley Cooper is signed up to direct, and he's going to be in the movie. So there's just no way to get a film made. So that now we're just looking at doc, doing a documentary. And we're gonna and, and so he said, we're trying to figure out how to get the funding for the documentary. And I say to him, I'm like, okay. And and Ross goes, so while I'm talking to them, I say to Shimmy, Shimmy how do you know all this information and shimmy tells me his father is the president of warner brothers and i go uh okay now ross told me that months ago before he ever sent him anything when he asked him to sign the nda he hadn't even sent him anything yet and and i was like um okay and ross says And I told him, are you fucking serious? If I had known your father was the the president of Warner Brothers, I never would have sent you the manuscript. For all I know, you gave it to your father. And he tells me, he goes, I mean, for all I know, they used it to write the screenplay. And I was like, okay, right, right. And all I could think of was, why is he saying this? Like, why are you telling me this? When I, you've, like, did, it was like, I guess he forgot that he told me that Shimmy's father was a president of Warner Brothers? Like, why are you telling me this? I know that's bullshit. Like, that's, a, that's total bullshit. You knew all this prior to sending him that. So he says he gets super offended with Shimmy. And he says, I can't believe that you guys did this. And he hangs up the phone. He said, So we're interviewing lawyers right now. We, we've got the one this one lawyer right now that I'm I'm talking to. And um, he this and he that and he and I'm going like this is all he's focusing on at all. He's and I'm like, what's going on with Simon and Schuster? Oh, well, you know, I'm still kind of working with them and I just don't know if I'm, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure if that's going to work out. Like it'll take them a while to publish the book. And, and, you know, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's like, what the fuck is going on? So I end up writing Ross a letter that says, Ross, like, I, I cannot believe that this is what's going on. That I worked, you know, three or four months on this project. That you guys have completely pissed away every opportunity. Like, when I was like, well, he's got to do the CNN documentary. Like, some woman from from New York, or I'm sorry, from like Atlanta, flew down to Miami, met with Devaroli, met with Ross, negotiated... Um, a deal with CNN where CNN was going to allow them to run ads during the CNN, like a, a two-hour CNN documentary on Devaroli. They were going to allow them to run ads about the memoir and, produ- and put the memoir out. How many ads, how many books do you think would have sold had they run ads on a two-hour documentary about Devaroli and about their case? that case prior to or during the course when the movie comes out like i'm thinking a lot of books i'm thinking that that's probably turns it into a bestseller wouldn't do it same thing uh they both met with the guy who did um corbin what's his name michael corbin Tim. i don't know somebody tell me in the comment section corbin who also is in Miami, who, who wrote who did the, the documentary um, Square Grouper and Cocaine Cowboys. Same thing. They met with him. He wanted to do a documentary. Didn't happen. Also, wouldn't be interviewed by the New York Times. So I write this letter saying, look, you you guys have completely fucked up this situation. Your only concern at this point is suing Warner Brothers. You're not even trying to publish the goddamn book. Like... Let's get the book out before Lawson gets his book out. They're, they're, they're not even remotely concerned about that because they've already set it up to sue Warner Brothers. So the idea of pushing to get this book, like I'm like, let's self-publish the book. You're wasting your time suing Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers hasn't done anything wrong. And so that's what I write in this letter. I send this letter to Ross. So I I mail this letter to I I send this letter to Ross, and um I don't hear from Ross anymore. Like I sent this letter like blasting him and Devaroli. because keep in mind Devaroli doesn't I don't hear from Devaroli. I don't hear from Devaroli. I don't hear from Ross. They've completely fucked up all these opportunities. I'm like, self-publish the book and do the CNN documentary and be interviewed by the New York Times, the LA Times, the like. There's dozens. There's like a dozen magazines that, or dozen um, newspaper newspapers that want to talk to him. He could be in any magazine he wanted, and there would have been a, a six thousand word article on him, and it could have been about. And I just wrote my book. Like you would have sold a ton of books. None of that happens. So I'm pissed. I mail this letter and I don't even talk to Ross anymore. I haven't even heard from Ross at this point. Um, So I'm look, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and, uh, so I'm going to keep going for a second just so I can explain one thing. So at this point, like I don't, I haven't heard from Ross in weeks or months. He's not returning emails. I don't talk, you know, that's it. Like, like I'm like, okay, this guy's got my book. He's got Deveroli's book. Deveroli doesn't talk to me. Ross doesn't talk to me. I'm stuck in prison. Like, like, what do they care? They don't care. Um, at this point, though, I basically go I, I've now gone back to tr- uh, gone back to sentencing. I've managed, I had 26 years when I started. I've managed to get it dropped down by seven years. I got seven years knocked off my sentence. And I explained that in one of the other videos, so I'm not gonna get into all that. So I end up knocking it it's getting at this point, it's seven years has been knocked off. My sentence. Um which keep in mind, Deveroli isn't doesn't know any of this. So he still th- he and Ross are like, this guy's locked up till 2030. Like they don't have to deal with me. It's not hard. You just don't email me, you don't you don't call you don't email me and you don't pick up the phone. How hard is it to get rid of some guy in prison? Don't pick up the phone. You don't have to hear from this guy again. So I'm walking around the compound writing stories, still writing stories. Um, At this point, actually, at this point, I think I'm writing Bent. By this point, I've written the book Bent. So I think everybody that's watching this probably knows who John Boziak is. John Boziak is um, a credit card a, a kid who grew up homeless on the streets of Miami and ended up Uh, becoming a credit card counterfeiting, credit card counterfeiter. And he, he sold like, is it like 2.5 million or $3.5 million in counterfeit credit cards? The Russian mob, he's on a multiple different indictments. Super cool story. Check it out. Pick it up. It's on Amazon. Um, Anyway, so I've written that story. I'm writing that story. I'm walking around the compound one day. And this guy that I was also, also writing another story about this guy named um, Dennis Caroni, Dennis Caroni, I'm sitting at a table with Dennis Caroni and my friend, I'm, I'm sitting at a table in an area that they called Stonehenge on the compound. It's late. It's it, it's like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to to to, to um my buddy Pete, and we're talking, and this guy Dennis Caroni walks by, and he goes, Hey, Cox, and I'm like, uh, he actually calls me Matthew. He, he's like, Matthew, Matthew. I'm like, what? What's up? And He goes. He said, "You making any money off that book?" And I go, "What book?" And he goes, "That book. The book. Um, you know, uh, that book." And I, I thought he meant. Um, I remember initially I thought he meant because when I got the guys in Rolling Stone, the other guys, the, I, I had gotten a, I ended up getting a book deal for a Doug Dodd. We ended up getting a book deal. I wrote his book. I ended up writing his book, and I got a literary another a second. So now I got another literary agent because I don't trust Ross anymore. So I've got another literary agent, and I end up writing this story. This book, which is basically the article that was in Rolling Stone about Doug Dodd, I end up getting a book deal. I get an advance. It's on the sh- shelves at Barnes and Nobles. It was published. It's called Generation Oxy. Like I liked my. My 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 title was Oxy Rush. Um, Guy Lawson named his generation. No, Gee Lawson named his version. His totally stolen version of my of my story in Rolling Stone. He called it uh, the Dukes of Oxy. And then I ended up writing the the whole book, and we got a book a deal with Skyhorse Publishing, and it's called Generation Oxy. From High School Wrestlers to Pain Pill Kingpins, which was a great subtitle. Anyway, so I end up getting this book. So I remember, you know, Dennis Caroni says, hey, man, you making any money? I was like, um, and I actually, and I thought he meant this one, but I don't think this had come out yet or something. But I remember being going like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, Dev Roli's book. Do you make any money on that? And I went, no, I said, there's, and I didn't want to get into it with him. So I was like, nah, they're still looking for publishers. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, they're still looking for publishers. They haven't published it yet. And he goes, What are you talking about, bro? And he pulls out Ocean's Drive magazine. Keep in mind, I have no way to check on anything. I'm locked up. I can't check on anything. I can't, there's no internet. Ross isn't answering the phone. Deveroli doesn't answer the phone. Nobody's answering nothing from me, so I don't know what's going on. He pulls out Ocean's Drive magazine. Right there. And he shows me a picture of Ephraim Devaroli. Ephraim Deveroli's right here. Ephraim Deveroli is holding a copy of his manuscript, or sorry, a copy of his book, his hardcover book. It says under the caption, Ephraim Devaroli at the 2016 Miami Book Fair in Miami. And he's got what looks like 50 or 100 books behind him. And he's holding up my book, Once a Gunrunner. Let's do this. Look right here. We're going to switch. We're going to switch. Once a Gunrunner. He's holding up Once a Gunrunner. And look, at my name's right there. Ephraim Dever memoir, Ephraim DeBeroli, with Matthew Cox. And you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say based. It doesn't say based on his truth, st- on this story. It says, Once a Gunrunner. The real story. It says that everything in the book is 100% accurate and correct. Told by the very person that that lived it. I remember being very concerned about that. Um, I immediately, immediately was just like, I just remember this this wave of heat running over my whole body, and Pete. I explain. Pete goes, "What's going on?" Because I just met Pete, and so I tell Pete what's happening. And Pete is like, "Oh wow, that's crazy, bro." He, Pete goes to his mother, goes and gets on the phone, calls his mother. I end up going and calling my sister, and I end up I end up getting we end up getting several press releases sent in, and it turns out that they had just filed their lawsuit and in their lawsuit they explain ross explains that shimmy had given the manuscript to his father the president of warner brothers and they had used the manuscript to rewrite the screenplay and they were shoot that the mo- entire movie had been shot based off of Devaroli's book and not Packhouse, not, not Packhouse's version or not the Rolling Stone version of the story, which is based on Packhouse's uh, telling of the story. So it's, it's really the whole movie's based on that book. So I, 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 which by the way, I know is a lie. Like, I'd love to sit here and tell you, yeah, man, they used my book to write the movie and I got screwed, but that's a fucking lie. Like, that's not what happened. They set up Shimmy to to possess the book so they could sue Warner Brothers. And let's face it, that's a great scam. Like, that in front of a jury would play out amazingly. So, at this point... I'm 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 like in shock at what happened and if you watch the next video I'll explain exactly what ends up happening because my buddy Pete comes in and Pete's like you got to sue them you have to sue them the fuck am I going to sue anybody I'm in federal prison you can't sue let me tell you why you can't sue anybody from federal prison Because at some point, if you sue somebody in a civil lawsuit in federal prison, and at some point it goes to trial, even if you can manage to keep up with all of the back and forth with the court, state or federal court, if you can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know what ultimately ultimately ends up happening? You end up having to go to court, and guess what? You can't go to court because you're in federal prison, and that's a problem. But I'm going to show you what ends up happening and how I deal with it and how it all works out. So if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so that you get notified of videos just like this. And leave me a comment and let me know how bad I screwed up on some of the story and how I need to possibly have my timeline down better. But let's face it, I'm really pulling most of it just from my head. So if my timeline's off a little bit, you know, you'll be okay. Um, that's really it. I appreciate you guys watching. If you want to really, if you really like it and say, wow, you know what? I like this series. Like, Matt's giving me a ton of content. I listen to this while I'm driving a lawnmower and mowing yards or I'm in the back office and I'm loading boxes or I'm a truck long-distance truck driver or whatever you do while you listen to this type of thing and you think, you know what? Matt's a not not a bad guy and I'd like to help support him. I have a Patreon. Please go to my Patreon. There's three different tiers. You can check it out. It's all of the links are in the description. Check it out. And if you'd like to buy any of the books that I've talked about, and there's more books. I'm going to talk about the There's more books I wrote, which all kinds of stuff's going on. So um, if you'd like to read any of the books, most of them are, oh, I think pretty much all of them are on, on uh, Amazon. And all the links are in the description. And almost all of them have audibles attached to them. So check those all out too. I appreciate it. Oh, by the way, you can thank me if you say, hey, you know what? I don't want to join Patreon, but I want to thank you, bro. You can hit the thank you button. You go to the bar below where it says, like, you know, the the little thumbs up, and you scroll over. There's a thank you button. You can actually thank me. You can give me $2. You can give me $3, $5. You can give me $50 if you were so inclined to do so, and I would appreciate that. But I'd also appreciate $2, too, because every little bit counts. And I appreciate it, and thank you very much. And thanks for watching. And check out the next video when I do the next video because I'm gonna—it's all gonna come together, and you're gonna be like, "Wow, it's gonna be like, like all that happened, and while you were in prison and got out, and then you did—yes, it's insanity."